you've got a Bible, <clears throat> Esther chapter 7 is where we'll be this morning. And um, we've been going through this series uh, in the book of Esther because we're, we're trying to think through how do we handle life when things are not going our way and God feels absent? Because that's the story. Esther is a follower of God, and uh, she's in Persia, and the story is told in such a way that God is never even mentioned. And so she has to wrestle through, what does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? And we get to kind of look at the experience from a distance, and we can discern God's definitely at work in this story. He's just not mentioned by name. So we've been working our way through this series, and we're coming now to the close. We've got this week and, and the next two, but things are now going to begin wrapping up. So if you've not been here, I'll do my best to bring in the context and remind you of certain things so that you're not left in the dust, but we'll work our way through Esther chapter 7, and uh, we'll, we'll pray now that God will use this time, and then we'll let God speak to us through his word. So let's bow if you would. And let's pray. Lord, we are asking right now that you, by your Spirit, through your Word, would speak. Because we want to hear your voice. And as we're talking about voices, Lord, I'm mindful of Moses and his concern. He said to you, I don't speak very well. And you told him, who made your mouth? And so today we're looking to you because you can carry my voice through the day. Um, and we're praying for that. But more than my voice, Lord, we just want to hear it from you. So would you please have your way with our time? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the queen's request comes in verses 1 to 4. Uh, they're at a banquet. And this is actually the second banquet now. So um, a, a circumstance has arised where Esther is a Jewish woman who is now the queen of all of Persia. And there's an individual named Haman who does not like Jews. So he has drafted a law to execute all of the Jews in all of the provinces on a certain day in the future. And they don't even know that Esther is a Jew yet, and so her identity is hidden, and she realizes, if I don't do something here, in fact, Mordecai inspired her to this conclusion, but she realizes, if I don't do something here, we're in, we're in big trouble. So she goes in to the king to make this incredible request. But this is dangerous because it is against the law. For her to go to the king without being summoned is actually punishable by death. But she says, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to go. And, and Mordecai had said to her previously, perhaps this is why you are the queen. Perhaps you're a queen for such a time as this. So now she's about to go in and make her request. But what, what's interesting is this is now the second banquet. So the previous day, she, she goes to the king unbidden, and he says, I'll spare your life. What is it that you want? I'll, I'll grant it up to half the kingdom. And she says, well, I've prepared a meal for you and Haman. Let's sit down and let's eat. So they do that. They eat. They drink wine. The king again says, okay, babe, what is it that you want? I'll grant it to you up to half the kingdom. And she says, actually, if you would come back to a banquet I prepare for tomorrow, you and Haman, if you come back tomorrow, then I'll make it known. A lot of things happen overnight. We'll get into that here momentarily. But uh, the next day, Haman is 
escorted to the party. In fact, it sounds like he was captured, really, not like a guest, but like a prisoner. The eunuchs come, and they drag him away to this party, and they show up here in verse 1 of chapter 7, and it reads like this. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And now the king again reiterates the invitation. Verse 2, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Now here's what I'm noting, and I've said it a few weeks ago. I'll say it again. There is a, there is a purposefulness here. It's not that this is a failure of nerve. It's not that Esther's sitting there going, I don't want to say it yet. I don't want to say it yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm, I'm nervous here. No, no, no. This is strategic. There is a patience with which she is presenting her request. And, and I'm reading it as, this is strategy. This is tact. This is wise. Proverbs 25 puts it like this. It reads like this. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. In other words, it's saying your words can have a force to them. You, you can say something, and it can accomplish something. But what we need to underline here is that there is wisdom in patience. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. So Esther has now repeatedly, intriguingly enticed the king to ask her over and over and over again. In fact, three times he has publicly now said, what is it that you want? I will grant it even up to half the kingdom. So now he's on the hook because he has publicly reaffirmed time and time again over these two days, whatever it is that you're after, I'm going to grant. So now he's in a position where if he doesn't grant it, he's going to look like a fool. Now, this is important for us. If we care about truth, and I hope you do, if we care about communicating truth to other people, you should not only care about the delivery of truth, but also its reception. If you care that somebody will receive truth, you should think along these lines. It matters deeply, not just that you get it off your chest, but that the hearer, the recipient, would hear that and go, I think you're right. I think I should do something here. We need to become people who are more like Esther in this sense. She is patient, strategic, careful, and graceful in the way that she talks to, to the king. Because what she has to say really, really matters. Now, if you take that to heart, then we need to be thinking through, how do we deal with other people? Especially around topics that are very near to our hearts. How do we communicate with other people? Because some of us just say, look, I'm a straightforward person. I'm just blunt. So I just tell people how it is. And you feel like you've done your due diligence. You've shared truth. The problem is, if you do it in that way and it's not received, I actually think that's, that's partly on you. you. You may have communicated truth, but you have not delivered that truth in an appropriate way. So whether that's an employer or a spouse or a friend, whether that's us trying to share the gospel or us just talking about things going on in the world, I think it's very, very important that we would become the kind of people who communicate in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we would share things in a way that actually has a tone and a vibe about it, that's going to accomplish something. So Esther presents her case here. Verse 3, the queen Esther answered, if I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. You see, what she's doing here is she is speaking in a, in a way that's graceful and respectful. 
She's communicating in a way that says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set this up so that you hear it appropriately. And she's speaking to the king with, with incredible deference and respect. So she's saying, if I found favor with you. Now, when I do premarital counseling and I suggest to people that they do these sorts of things, communicate in a way where you're going to lay praise on. And people go, well, that just feels manipulative. But the truth is, we are much more likely to, to hear something if we receive it with that sort of tone. So she says, if I've found favor with you, if it pleases you, and again, this is wise communication. This is wisdom and tactfulness in the relationship. Proverbs 22 puts it like this, one who loves a pure heart and who speaks with grace will have the king for a friend. Are we willing to speak with grace? Are we willing to honor authority? That's what she's doing here. She's recognizing that she is dealing with the monarch, with the emperor, with the king. And so she's going to frame the conversation accordingly. She's honoring him. Now, honestly, in our culture, this is lost on us. Even the mere mention of authority is offensive to many of us. We kind of resent that category altogether. The Bible, however, does not present that. The Bible repeatedly gives us the indication that authority ought to be dealt with in a manner of respectfulness. In fact, let me just share it from 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the Apostle Peter writing to the church, to the scattered church, Christians, and he just lays it down as a principle. In verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he just says, honor the emperor, period. That's it. Now, who's the emperor when he's writing that letter? It's, it's the Roman emperor. This is somebody who's not a believer. This is somebody who's not favorable to Christianity, who's not inclined to help people pursue God. But Peter says, look, this is what we do as Christians. Honor the emperor. And then you go, okay, Cor, I'll give you that one. Maybe we should honor authority, but what if they're bad? Well, that's the very next verse in that same chapter of 1 Peter. He goes on to say, look, you don't just show respect when they deserve it. Show respect even to those who are undeserving, even to those who are bad in their position. And I would argue Xerxes, pretty bad at his job. I'll show you along the way. But she's honoring him and speaking with authority or, or speaking to this one who has authority in a certain way. Now, I know I probably lost you on that because you're like, eh, I don't buy that. But anyways, I think we need to be patient and careful and tactful and respectful in our speech. Verse four, she says, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. She's saying, look, this is so severe that I cannot hold my peace here. Now, if it had been a minor offense, I wouldn't bring it before you. But this is pretty major. She's saying, I'm the queen, and I have been sold for execution. I have been set up to be destroyed. Now, as you look at this then, again, this request, I want you to highlight the fact that she is dealing with the king with relational tactfulness. And we need to do the same thing. We need to be careful in our speech. We need to be gracious in our dealings with others. And we do this because we really do care about truth. And we want people not just to hear it, but to receive it. Well, secondly then, we find that Haman is exposed in verses 5 and 6. The, the one who has drafted this law to execute the queen, he's actually sitting right there. Verses 5 and 6, the king asks a very important question. 
In verse 5, he says, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Where is this, this person who has sold you, not just as a slave, but sold you for annihilation and death? Now, this is funny to me because the king ought to know, right? Like, this is his job. This is his kingdom. This just reveals how bad of a leader he really is. He doesn't even know what's going on, even with his own queen. He's clueless here. So if something were going on in our church, and it was affecting a, a large group of you, if, if I'm unaware, that would just reveal that I'm inept. And if I'm a part of the problem, that would even further exacerbate the fact that I'm not a good leader. That's what's happening here. Not only is the king clueless, he's also culpable. He's a part of the problem. He's the one who signed off on this letter. So he's saying, who is this person? Who would dare to do such a thing? And Esther reveals the situation in verse 6. She says, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman, this guy who's sitting right here eating with us and drinking with us, this is the man. This is the guy who has set me up for destruction. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So what we have here then is the exposure of this plot to execute the queen and all of God's people in Persia. Now, as I was sitting with it this week, I was recognizing that one of the tendencies that we have when we talk about evil, so the question that the king has, I think is really, really important. He says, who would dare to do that? And what I'm noticing in my own heart and with some of you and just in general, what we tend to do is, who would do such awful stuff? And we go, I'll tell you who. And we point to them. And we go, this leader, this ideology, this movement. And we point away from ourselves and to other people. And we go, it's this vile enemy of ours. But the more that I sat with it, I began to realize, uh, I'm kind of like Haman. If the king's going to say, who would do such a thing? And if I'm going to be honest, I have to be willing to say, I, I kind of do that stuff when things don't go my way, when I have a selfish interest and somebody feels to be opposing it, I can be an awful lot like Haman. I think we need to sit with that a little bit. I think we need to think through who would do such evil stuff. And if we're being honest, we have to say, we would. It's in us to do that sort of thing. In fact, you might think, well, you're being a little hard on yourself, Core. But the truth is, James in the New Testament writes to the churches, to Christians, and he asks a question. He goes, hey, why is there so much fighting going on? And he answers it. He goes, why is there fighting within churches? And, and he, he says, is it not because of the evil desires in your hearts? You want something and you can't have it? And so you engage in conflict. So here's what James is saying, and I'm agreeing with him. A lot of times the problem that we're dealing with is actually an internal problem. It's in us. It's the evil desires that we have. Who would do such a thing? And I have to say, well, honestly, if given those circumstances, I would. I mean, good grief. If you gave me as much power and authority as Haman has, I would make a pretty big mess real quick. So I note here that the importance of just taking this story to heart and personalizing it. There's a, a preacher, well, let me share this one with you. You guys have heard me say it before, but it's worth repeating. There was an editorial written by the London Times, and G.K. Chesterton supposedly wrote back to it, 
The question was put out there, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton answered by writing just this, what's wrong with the world, comma, I am. End. That's it. He just submitted that. And I think that posture is appropriate for us. That we need to be willing to say, what's wrong with the world? Well, me. As far as I'm concerned, with the level of awareness that I have, the, the most broken thing that I have access to is my own heart. The most foul thing is my own heart. John Bradford was a preacher in the 1550s. Um, he was known for being incredibly humble and incredibly repentant. He actually wrote a sermon on repentance that was uh, published maybe 20 years later, but he was talking about all the different things that he would do to cultivate in him a spirit of humility and a, and a self-awareness of his own sinfulness. One of the things that he's known for is when he, he was in a situation where he would often see prisoners walking by to their execution, and one of the habits that he had was that he would say this, when he would look at a prisoner going off to their execution, he would not say what most of us tend to say. Look at them. They're getting what they deserve. No, no, no. He would say it like this. He would say, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. He puts his own name in the story and he goes, if it weren't for the restraining grace of God, that could be me. I think that's something that we need to learn how to do. When we look at a story like this and we read about Haman, let's not just kind of distance ourselves from him and go, yeah, he's evil, he's vile, and we want to stay away from those kinds of people. The problem that we have is those are our kind of people. That's me. Well, sin then is exposed here, and it tells us that sin will find you out. Sin will find you out. Karen Jobes talks about it like this. She says, people sin with the delusion that they will not get caught. There's a... There's a delusional aspect to sin. You just think, look, this is what I do. Nobody's really going to care. Nobody's ever going to figure this thing out. But the Bible repeatedly points in a different direction. It will be exposed. In fact, in the New Testament, it's put like this. 1 Timothy 5 reads like this. The sins of some are obvious. They reach the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. But what's the point? All sins will be exposed. Whether it's an obvious one or whether it's a hidden one, it will be revealed. This story reminds us of that aspect. No sin will remain permanently concealed. It will be exposed. So when we look at this story then and we see Haman being exposed, we need to recognize that evil and evildoers and our own brokenness, all of that is going to be revealed before God. And we need to be willing to be honest about that and, and look to God for what he alone can do. Well, this also points us in, in the, the direction of, this isn't just a story about us, though I'm trying to connect the dots for us. It's also the story about this cosmic reality, that we live in a world that is broken and there is hostility toward God and his people. One of the commentators says, this is not just run-of-the-mill evil. This is the conflict between the seed and the serpent going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible where God said to Eve, through your offspring, through your seed, this good news is going to come eventually. And the serpent is the devil, and he goes, I hate that. I hate that God has a strategy, a long-range strategy to bring about salvation. So there's a hostility between the seed, God's people, and the serpent. And we see that here in our story where Haman is saying, look, I don't just want Mordecai to be punished because he won't bow down to me. I want all of the Jews everywhere to be annihilated. That's demonic. 
That's, that's the stuff of Herod. When Jesus was born and he couldn't find him in, in Matthew chapter two, what did he do? Kill all the babies. Let's just kill all the babies. If I can't find this guy, destroy all the babies. So we're talking about evil. We'll come back to that here in a minute. But we see then that Haman is impaled in verses seven to nine. The king got up in a rage. He left his wine. He went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, he stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So the king gets up. He's, he's frustrated by all that's happening here. He's enraged by it. And, and what, what I note here is he doesn't know what to do. This is not a clear-cut situation. He's upset, and that's obviously troublesome for Haman. Look at Proverbs 16, 14. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, but the wise will appease it. This is, this is a situation where Haman realizes, I'm in trouble here. I'm in trouble here. And so um, he, he, he's in trouble, and he stays behind to plead for his life. Now, this is a complicated matter for a lot of different reasons. One is Haman is the second in charge of all of Persia, and the king installed him. This is, this is the king's right-hand dude. This is the guy that he... The, the king actually wrote a letter, uh, a, a law that said, whenever Haman shows up, you bow down to him. That's how incredible this guy is. That's how awesome this guy is. And that actually ended up being the reason for all of this because Mordecai would not bow down to him. But this is the king's second-hand person. Furthermore, the king is complicit. The law to exterminate all the Jews, do you know whose signature is on it, whose signet ring stamped it? The king's. So this is not an easy situation for him to just resolve quickly. Like, oh yeah, this guy's done something awful. Let's just kind of undo that. No, no, no. One of the reasons why I think he gets up in rage and he leaves he doesn't know how he's going to handle himself. He doesn't know what he's going to do here. He doesn't know how to make things right. But listen, friends, God does. God does. God has a plan here that, that the king cannot even perceive. So, Haman is begging for his life. Verse 8, it says, Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. What is he doing? He's kneeling. He's kneeling before a Jewish individual. This is incredible irony. He drafted a law because Mordecai, a Jew, wouldn't bow down to him. Now he is kneeling before the Jewish individual saying, please spare my life. And it uses that word fall on purpose because it goes back to that previous uh, verse from last week where it said that his fall is certain because he is going against God and his people. Now this is his downfall. The king then comes in, he sees him begging for his life, but he does not interpret that as desperation. He doesn't look at this and go, this is a desperate individual. No, no, no. He sees it instead as an assault on the queen. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Okay, he didn't know what he was gonna do, because he is involved in the drafting of that law. He doesn't just have a clear way forward. But now he looks at this situation, and this is against the law. You're not even supposed to come into proximity with the queen. And now he says, this man is assaulting my queen. And they cover him. They place a covering over his face. As soon as the word 
left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And the punishment is then considered one of the eunuchs, Harbana, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. All of a sudden now we're pulling in all these other amazing details. Overnight between the two banquets, um, Haman bumps into Mordecai on his way home from the palace. Mordecai doesn't bow again and he goes, I can't stand this guy. And I know we've got a date in the future where we're going to terminate him and all his people, but I can't take him anymore. And he goes to his wife and his friends and they say, listen, don't lose any sleep over this. Have, have, some, have a gallows erected where you can just be done with this guy. Build it. And then in the morning, go to the king, have Mordecai terminated, and then go to your party and enjoy yourself. And that's what's happening overnight between these two parties. There's a construction project going on to build this instrument of death. And then there's also this reality that's going on in the palace. The king can't sleep. And he reads a record and he finds out that Mordecai saved his life. And he says, what's been done for this dude? What did we do when this guy saved my life? And they go, well, we haven't done anything yet. He goes, we better make that right, right now. And he says, let's honor this guy. And the irony here is, Mon is leading Mordecai through the city, decrying, this is the man the king delights to honor in. And now we get to this point where Haman is exposed and the punishment is considered, and they go, what should we do about this guy? And one of the eunuchs says, well, guess what? There's a, there's a gallows, there's an there's a instrument of execution that was fashioned at his house for Mordecai that saved your life. Let's just be done with him right here. And so the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled him on, on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Well, we should ask the question, what does this mean for us? This is a lot to take in. What does this mean for us? One of the things that I, I want to point out is I believe that this story is really a case study in how God deals with evil. It's really a case study in how God thinks about and acts and behaves toward evil. One of the questions that's very haunting is the question that we often pose to God. Why is there so much evil in the world? And then a follow-up like that is, what are you doing about it? And one of the very pointed ways that it's put in the scriptures is, why does it feel like the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Those are important questions, and I think this story gives us a case study of the ultimate conclusion of that matter. There is evil in the world. It's in my heart, too, but there's some awful things that are happening. And one of the things that we take comfort in as Christians is that is not how it's always going to be. God one day will settle accounts. It's called a day of reckoning or a day of judgment. But one day, the evil that we find in the world, it'll be dealt with swiftly. And God will no longer allow those sorts of things to happen. He will punish evildoers. So Haman then is kind of a preview of what God is ultimately going to do on the day of judgment. And it gives us hope. Now, I wish that I could say to you, every time there's evil going on in your life, you're going to have this kind of experience. God's going to step in real time. He's going to fix everything and just make it all better. But that's not the way that it works, really. Oftentimes, we as Christians, we're looking forward to that day. 
we look forward with confidence that he is going to do it, but the timeline might not fit our expectations. So we're able to say with the saints in Revelation who have been martyred for their faith, and there's a vision of them, and they're waiting, and they're saying, God, how long, how long is this going to remain? How long are evildoers going to continue to do these sorts of things? And God basically says to them, just a little longer, just a little longer. But we then can say, look, we know one day evil, it's donezo. One day, it doesn't get the final word. It doesn't have the final say on this world. God is going to bring about a judgment that is swift and perfect, and it will be fitting. In fact, Proverbs puts it like this, the wicked's malice may be concealed by deception, but their wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. There's that exposure. They, sins will not remain concealed. It goes on to say, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. It's saying, look, the judgment to come will be fitting to the crimes performed against God and his people. God is going to set all things right. So, as we wrap up today and we think through, not only the future hope of God making all things right, I think we do need to personalize this a bit more. You, like me, might become aware of your own hearts and you might be, fall under the conviction of sin and go, you know what, Cor, you are right. There are things in my heart that are broken. I see myself in Haman, so what do I do about it? What do I do about this brokenness? Ian DeGood in his commentary, he says, perhaps the most profound truth in this chapter of God's word lies in the vivid contrast between, between the Lord our God and King Xerxes, between the heavenly king and the earthly emperor. When we look at how the king handled this situation, King Xerxes, and we see, okay, he needed to punish evil. He didn't even know how to do it very well. But somebody suggested a plan, and he executed that plan. When we look at him and how inept he is, and, and, and nonetheless, he's got that position, and he does punish the evildoer here. But when we contrast that with God, we get a whole different story. The king of kings, the heavenly king who is able to punish sin, but here's what's even better. Not only can he punish sin, he can pardon it. He punishes sin either eternally or on the cross. And we can look to the punishment that Jesus Christ bore on our behalf, and we can receive forgiveness. And we can acknowledge that, yes, we too are broken. We too are selfish. We too have our own idols that if somebody messes with them, then, then who, who knows what we would do if we become unhinged? But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve so that we could entrust ourselves to him and receive forgiveness and pardon and grace. And that changes you. When you believe the good news of the gospel, it changes you. It makes you a new person so that you could be agents of God in a broken world. You could be people who are going through the world with a deep concern for truth, but you're sharing it in a way that is gracious and patient and careful because you want other people to come to know your Savior. And you present the good news of the gospel and you acknowledge your own sinfulness, but you repeatedly go to Jesus to receive from him what he alone can give. It changes you. And it could change the world. If a bunch of Christians believed this stuff and took it to heart, we could be the agents of God's good news in a broken world. And yes, there is evil, but we know one day God's going to make it all better. There will be no more sin or death or sickness. The old order is going away. And in the meantime, we got our marching orders. We're going to be agents of that God in this broken world for God's own glory. Let's pray. Lord, we 
ask right now that you would continue to help us by your spirit, through your word, continue to help us be your people. I pray for those that are in here today and they're, they're considering their own sinfulness and their own condition, Lord, and the truth is we can acknowledge that if you treated us as we deserve, it could be punishment. But we're so grateful, God, for the invitation that you extend to us to receive not punishment, but mercy and grace and forgiveness. So I pray for people today who, who have an opportunity right now in this moment to claim Christ as a Savior, to be able to say, He died for me. And I receive that. I gladly receive that. And then, Lord, for those of us who make that profession of faith, would you help us to be your people in this broken world? Be agents of goodness in a world full of evil. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.